We are and always will be a nation of immigrants. This is my country, my damn country. Give me my country, you can keep the rest. Old men and women yearning for freedom and opportunity who leave their homelands and come to a new country to start their lives over. We were strangers once too. Hello, 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 aliens and allies. Your friendly Russian is here. This is We the Aliens podcast, and I am your host, Sasha Kapustina. Here, I talk to immigrants who are kicking ass in the U.S. Thank you for tuning in. This is part two of my conversation with Essen Zafar. And if you're tuning in here, I highly recommend that after listening to this episode, you go back to the previous one and listen to the fascinating story of Essen's family escape from war-torn Kuwait. Some crazy stuff in there. In today's episode, we talk about Essen's passion, the fight for equality. Essen is a civil rights lawyer, a professor, and an author. He's also the director of the newly formed Center on Inequality at Arizona State University called The Difference Engine. The way Essen talks about fighting for equality is very different from what we usually hear. And I'm really excited to bring you this conversation. Here's our chat. Some part of it's probably this desire that nobody else should experience what I experience. Um, you know, I've taken on roles where I place myself in some kind of a protective role or advisory role. I'm a, I was a senior advisor on civil rights in the government. I'm a teacher and a professor now and have been for 10 years. I take on the same role with friends and family. I kind of like, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll take care of it. You know, mm -hmm. like that kind of role. And so, uh, and I'm, you know, if I'm really getting like uh, deep about it, like I imagine that the part of that is like the ability to control my environment has become valuable to me because as a child, I, I went through a long period of time where I had no control despite the best efforts of my parents and you know, without them, I'd probably be even crazier than I am now. So they did a lot to create an, a, a bubble of safety in a very chaotic environment. Uh, but I have a desire to like have elements of, um, I know what it feels like for you to be in this chaotic environment or have like no agency. Or, so I'm going to help you out. Like we're going to work on this together. And that makes me feel like, because I've helped them like achieve some stability and just sense of justice that, that I feel like I've made the world a more just place, which makes me feel better because then I achieve a sense of stability and justice. Does that make sense? I don't know if that makes sense. That makes total sense. Your podcast is called Unfair Nation. And, you know, a Russian reaction to that would be, well, who told you it's supposed to be fair? Life's not fair. Uh, good reaction. And so why should things be fair? And should they? And can they? Things should definitely be fair. Yeah. So there's a reason why there's lots of reasons why I call it unfair nation. One of the reasons is to elicit reactions like this, the one that you or somebody in a, a stereotypical Russian person may have. Right. Yeah. Um, to get people talking. Right. Mm -hmm. The other is when somebody asks the question, it opens up this area for conversation, which is there's some level of inequality inherent in the world. And Technically, that's not a bad thing. You want there to be some inequality. You want people to strive. There has to be, if everything's in a perfect equilibrium, it's, things don't work, right? There has to be friction, push and pull, whatever. The problem happens is when systems become structurally unequal. 
In other words, no matter how hard you try, you cannot escape the inherent inequality built into a system. And when a system is like that, whether it's an economic system, a political system, or a social system, when a system becomes inherently structurally unequal, then it becomes unfair. People are willing to lose games as long as the game is fair. It's not the losing or the winning that matters. It's the fairness of the game that matters. We want to live in a society, and I want to build a society that is inherently fair. And it's okay if you lose as long as the game is not rigged. In other words, I'll give you an example of this. We are okay with seeing our boss, if she is in a big, sweet corner office, amazing views. We're not offended that our boss has a nice corner office. We're offended if she makes 300 times more than us. Or we're offended if, she, if, if she's like cheated us in some way. Or uh, no matter how much hard we try, we will never get close to getting that CEO's office. As long as we can, we are playing a game where we know that if we do this X, Y, and Z, our chances of getting that office not out of the not out of the ordinary. Then we're okay. We'll play the game, right? And so this is what the American dream, quote unquote, is all about. It's this idea that as long as you play by the rules of this fair game, you have a fair chance of winning. The problem is it's not really accurate, especially anymore, right? I mean, that dream is not an accurate dream. Yeah, totally not. And that's the unfairness in the system. We're sold on the fair system, but it's not really a fair system anymore. And I hate those ways of saying the system is rigged, but the game is rigged. Absolutely. Because if you're born in a certain zip code, that's that. Yeah, yeah. we live in a country that uh, is now, out of all of the quote-unquote industrialized democracies, where your chance of uh, upward mobility is now the least Great Britain, which is a society defined by social structure and social hierarchy, they have a queen. I mean, Great Britain is more, you, the chances of you being born in the bottom 25% of the population and moving up to the top, to the middle 50% are significantly higher in Great Britain than they are in the United States. Really? I did not know that statistic. Yes. We are number, I mean, this is a little bit outdated. It's probably even worse now. and I don't have no idea what it is with COVID. But as of 2015, we are number 66 or 67 in global mobility. And the thing that people don't understand about this, they say, oh, well, you know, uh, it's a zero-sum game. Some people have to be lower. Some people have to be higher. That's not true. How so? Because there's countries out there where people don't live in abject poverty just so some people can live in a good middle-class life. Well, I love that. Uh, I love that approach because usually what we hear, especially the further left the person is, the more it is represented that way that, oh, we need to take a, from the rich. We need, the, the popular sentiment, the popular idea is, and I don't know, I'm not an economist. I'm, I, I'm not sure where I stand there. Uh, let's tax the rich and take the money and put it towards the poor. I'm not sure that's going to work. Well, I would I would adjust that terminology and I would say that we need to we need to instead of taking away from the rich, the ultra rich, not the rich. Nobody cares. So the what you and I consider the rich is nothing. Okay? Like we may think they're the rich, but they are a drop in the bucket compared to the ultra rich, okay? The target of these policies is not the rich people, is not the people who drive like Porsches and Bentleys. Hello, people driving Porsches and Bentleys. Please support the Difference Engine, the new center I'm starting at ASU. We could use your funds. We're not talking about these people. We're talking about the people that are extremely wealthy, right? We're talking about the Jeff Bezos of the world, right? Yeah. That, I mean, just like they have so much wealth 
that they can't burn the cash fast enough. Those people, instead of taking from them, we need to encourage them to give of their own volition. So they need to give. We shouldn't take. They need to give more. They need to feel incentivized to give, right? That That's the culture that needs to change. And then they also need to stop creating an environment where there's this desire to kind of accumulate beyond excess, right? So, so encouraging policies that uh, re- retain their excessive ultra wealth at the expense of really low income people. Let me tell you one stat real quick. Jeff Bezos could spend uh, $15 million easy a week, okay? And his money would not run out at the current net worth that he has and that he's earning. It would not run out for another 1,500 years. And he's spending $15 million a week. He could spend $50 million a month. That number doesn't, that's a really good way of uh, showing it. He's earning more than he can, he's earning more than that level of spend is. And if I have $50 million, how much good can I achieve? If I spend 50 million a month, my money's never gonna run out. How much good can I achieve in this world? And what are you gonna do with 50? You already have all the cars you want. You're so ultra rich. There's nothing left you cannot buy. Why, why do you have, why, what, what do you do with this excess wealth? His wife got divorced from him. And the moment she got divorced, more power to women, I say, the moment she got divorced, gave away or is in the process of giving away half her wealth. Good for her. That's how people need to think. She still has billions of dollars, even after she gives away that wealth. Right. But like, that's how that's the society in the world that we need to start building and living. And so I, I love that way of thinking. And I know that there are a lot of wealthy people who are thinking that way. And I think there is a growing number of wealthy people that are realizing that. My question is to to what you were uh, saying, the incentivizing, what kind of clicked in my mind when I was, you know, reading about your work was that extreme inequality makes the society unstable and that creates uh, insecurity in the society. And I am of strong conviction that the division in the society that we have right now in American society is the consequence of that inequality that has been accumulated over generations. In that sense, inequality is a security issue. Yes, I think that economic inequality, that's structural, right? Structural inequality, not just regular old inequality. Inequality that's unfair, that you can't get out of, that creates frustration and anger and resentment, whether it's economic, political, or social. Yes, that is definitely uh, leads to this concept of authoritarian populism. But there's more to it, right? So that's one part of it. So economic, you can call it economic, a simple way to talk about it is economic grievance. What are the options they have to go make less money working for a grocery store, right? Um, Mm -hmm. But there's other things that cause authoritarian populism or broadly, let's say we'll call it insecurity in the country, right? Um, um, One is uh, a siloed media landscape, Mm -hmm. right? So if if your only source of news is coming from biased media sources, and then from social media, and when you click on, you know, Donald Trump lost the uh, won the election, and then every other story you get that the algorithm feeds you is the same kind of story. We're animals, right? So it reinforces psychologically that narrative, and you keep the more you click, the more stories you get, the more stories you get, the more you click, and so that's another part of that. What leads to kind of like what happened on January sixth was in part driven by you know, a siloed media landscape. This happens all over the world, not just in the US. 
if we're going to talk about inequality, let me give you a little story. In the 1950s, if you were a family of four and you're it's usually the dad, so we'll say you know, your dad had a job, one job, that person could support a family of four with one job, right? That was the traditional American family, right? Mm-hmm. 1970s rolls around. All of a sudden, the families just don't have enough. They're not making enough. Things are kind of getting tight. So what happens? Women enter the workforce mm-hmm. in the 1970s, right? You have like TV shows about this, Mary Tyler Moore, all this stuff. And they didn't enter the workforce because there was some awakening about women's role in the workforce, like some progressive awakening. That's not what happened. It's just that the families weren't earning enough money. Well, okay, so now the 1970s, 80s, 90s come, you still don't have enough money. So now what do people do? Now you have the, the, the both, let's say, a traditional, traditional quote family. You have the man and the woman working, not making enough. So they start leveraging the only asset they have, which is their home, right? They borrow on their home. Where did that get us? It's 2000, early, late, mid 2000s, 2007, 2008. We have the economic crash because people are leveraging their home left and right. Mm-hmm. Then you have the man and the woman working. You've leveraged your assets. You're still not making, your wages are still not keeping up with the cost of stuff. You know, you're still making like 1970s wages. Stuff's getting more expensive. So what do you do now? You take a third job. This is the rise of the gig economy. Mm-hmm. You start driving Ubers or delivering Instacart or I have, I have side gigs. I have like a podcast and I like, every, we all have side gigs. Okay. Like this is how most people now survive. What's the problem with this when it comes to security? How are you expected to be a intelligent citizen, to read up on the policies of people running for office, to make complicated decisions when you're working full time, your spouse is working full time, you have like a few hours to do everything else and take care of your kids. Then you have to go out there, hit the road again and drive Uber or work again on the weekends on your side gig, barely make enough ends meet. You're being constantly bombarded by a commercialized culture that forces you to buy or encourages you to buy stuff with the few resources you have. You know, this, and then in that environment, if you're presented with China did it, Mexicans are rapists, uh, ban all the Muslims, yeah, whatever the simple message is to a complicated problem, you'll buy into it because you're, you're primed, right? You don't have the time to like think about a 10-step plan, which is what Hillary had. Who's going to think about a 10-step economic plan? It's hard. It's hard to think about that when you have other stuff going on. Not that you're stupid, yeah. but you just don't have the, the time and the resources. So there's all these things that lead to this kind of insecurity. I'm going to stop giving you a lecture now. I feel like I'm giving a lecture. I apologize. Why? I think that's exactly, I mean, that, that's what I asked for. I love that you are unapologetically passionate about it. Because what I love most about America is this yes we can attitude to life. You talk about how problematic and unequal the situation is, but you talk about it with passion as in let's do something about it. And you actually believe that something can be done about it. And so you have created this uh, initiative with the Arizona University, uh, the, the Difference Engine. Uh, can you Tell me a little more about that. Yeah. So the Difference Engine is a, um, it's an applied center at Arizona State University. It's ASU-wide. And it basically creates things that communities can use to fight social, political, or economic inequality. And the idea stemmed from this, a lot of the work I've done over the last 10 years. 
but it you know really stemmed from a couple of beliefs. Belief number one was there was a lot of stuff that people were talking about the symptoms of what was happening in the country. You know, police brutality, for instance, against Black Americans. Racism. Racism is a symptom of our underlying broader structural inequality. And there's lots of people doing amazing work, colleagues of mine that are civil rights lawyers on racism, doing research. Great. You know, I'm, I support their efforts. I wanted to actually not talk about it anymore. I wanted to build things. And I didn't want to build things for the institutions that were affected. Okay, so what happens is like police are being racist. Okay, what are we going to do? Let's train the police. Now, I've done police trainings. I've trained LAPD and everything in the past in my own department. So look, I think there's like a space for it. Great. You want to train police? Fine. I don't think it's really working, but okay, maybe you have some innovative way of training police. Maybe you want to blow up the police system. Maybe you want to reform the police. Maybe you want to restart it. I support, you know, in principle, all of those efforts. The problem I have with that is the police already have money. The police already have resources. The police, you know, they have all the things they need to get better, okay? Who doesn't have the resources? The people that are affected by those policies. I want to focus on giving power to the communities that are affected by these issues. I don't want to focus on reforming Amazon. Mm -hmm. You know, I want to focus, what can I do to empower the people that are affected by the lower salaries that Amazon gives that's below the poverty wage, let's say, in some states. That's who I want to help. And what can we do? There's lots we can do. So there's levers of power still that work in the U.S. system, although they're diminishing slowly, but they still work. You can litigate. Litigation is still a thing you can do. You can empower communities to file lawsuits and advocate for their rights. Get them the resources they need to file lawsuits. Well, that's such a long path. And when you're fighting some huge machine like Amazon, they're going to hire a whole team of lawyers and you're going to be stuck in courts for the next 20. But ASU is 100,000 people and some of the best, most intelligent lawyers in the country. We're almost a top 20 ranked law school. We got our own people. Now, I'm not saying ASU is going to go out there and file lawsuits, but we can provide legal assistance and aid. Mm -hmm. The rule of law is still a relatively strong system in this country. Popular press is something that is a lever of power in this country. It's diminishing, but it's still a powerful lever of power. Voting, it worked in this last election. Voting worked during the middle of a pandemic. We had the highest voter turnout. Yep. So we create products that communities can use to, to push on these levers of power themselves. They don't have to, we don't want to help Amazon be better. We want to help communities push shame or force Amazon to be better. So they have the power, so they can do it again if they need to. We wanna build capability in the communities. We don't wanna build capability with Amazon. So they don't have to rely on congressional representatives alone to push out Amazon or something like that. And so that's what the Difference Engine does. It creates products. One of the products we're creating, for instance, is called the Women's Power Index. It's like a Yelp for inequality. Uh -huh. And what that does is it ranks domestic institutions. It gives them a score, a simple numerical score. And underneath that simple numerical score is a very complicated algorithm that tracks all kinds of things. It tracks the power of women at the workplace, let's say Walmart, women employees. It tracks the power of women customers. Uh, it tracks any interaction that Walmart has, broadly speaking, with women is tracked. And all that gets put into a score. Hmm. And we share that score with investors. We share that score with women workers at Walmart. We share that score with the media, with civil society, with civil rights lawyers. And we don't need Walmart's permission to do this work. Walmart can help out if they want to, 
especially if they want to become more progressive. But we gather this data. Students go out and do field research and gather this data. We get some publicly available data. We have algorithms that can determine what the data is by guessing. And we don't just count things like the differences between, let's say, if we're looking at female workers at Amazon, the differences between the salaries of men and women, because we always know that still to this day, men tend to earn 20 to 25% more than women in the same profession, same field. But we also track things that people don't really think about, but that still affect the power of women, especially at the workplace. For instance, how many restrooms are there for men and for women? How far away are they? Hmm. How big are they? Are they the same size? They should be larger if they're restrooms for women. Can the heating and air conditioning system be adjusted? Because most heating and air conditioning systems in corporate buildings are not designed for women. They're designed for men. How so? Because men have a different temperature. They run at a different temperature. They tend to be more comfortable in warmer weather. This is average. I'm not talking every woman, every man. But women tend to feel colder at a, di at a different temperature than men do. Mm. And so HVACs were designed by men and that kind of traditional set temperature when the HVAC is designed and put into a building is still designed for men. But realistically, what can we do about that? We can make the HVAC adjustable. Why is it that the HVAC is not adjustable? And if it's not adjustable, we should know about it because if you are uncomfortable at work, that determines your power at work. It might be a small amount, but now when we take it into the aggregate and we look at all of these hundreds of things and we spit out a score, that tells a community, this is how Walmart treats women, whether it's women workers or whether it's, and hey, investor, you want to invest in Walmart? Look at the score that comes up right when you look at their stock price. Are you sure you want to invest in this company? What if you're a female investor? Are you sure you want to invest in this company? Hey, news media, hey, civil rights organization, hey, you're filing a lawsuit, that's a data point. And if you are a company that's looking to be better when it comes to women, now you have enough data to do that work. Maybe there's some guilt and some pressure and some shaming. So that's the Women's Power Index. That's one of our products. We have other products, but I'm going to shut up because I won't ever shut up. I have noticed that whenever you want to bring an example of anything, you always speak of her. Where does that come from for you? I just, I'm in the field. I'm in the civil rights field. I want to be more representative. And we, we say he a lot. There's nothing wrong, in my opinion, with saying he. That's fine. We can say he. But, you know, let's say she. Why can't we say she? Like, I, I think in my pr perspective, what if I grew up always hearing she? How nice would it feel to hear he? And so that's why I say she, right? Because, like, I want to, everybody wants to feel heard, even if it's in a small way. And so that's my small, I don't always say she, but I try it to be, like, vast majority of the time. Yeah, I've noticed that. I feel it in my head because it changes how I think. Because... Just like everybody else, I have unconscious biases. You know, I, I do too. I'm not perfect, right? So for me, it's a way for me to think, oh, I just envisioned a female CEO in a corner office. Now it's becoming more normal for me to envision a female CEO in a corner office, right? So I force myself to do that repeatedly so that it becomes part of my conscious reality. So I don't have that unconscious bias. It's just, I do, I do it for me. I don't do it for really for anybody else, but I'm glad that it, it feels it helps people envision a more progressive reality for themselves. I think that's one of those simple things that we can try and we can play with. And you can say, one day you say she, another day you say, I say they a lot. I think they is great. Yeah, I do they too. And I don't, I'm not judging people who don't do it. It's just something I choose to do. Yeah. So. Well, I've enjoyed this tremendously and I can keep you much longer, but I do 
uh, still need to edit this <laughs> and <laughs> and post this. <laughs> and you need to come on my podcast, Sasha. I would love to. Honestly, that would be an honor. It was a pleasure being on your podcast. I really enjoyed it. You're a great host. Thank you. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you missed part one of our conversation with Essan, where we talk about his experience as a refugee, you can find it wherever you're listening right now. You can also find Essan on Twitter. Find his Unfair Nation podcast wherever you listen. You can also find The Difference Engine and sign up for their newsletter and keep up with the news about innovation and social justice. All the links are in the show notes. Shoot us a message. All the contact info and links to social media are in the show notes and on our website. Join our rooms on Clubhouse every Tuesday morning and Thursday evening. And let me know what you think in person. And don't forget to share the show with a friend. I don't know, someone who believes inequality is an actual danger to all of us. Or someone who is looking for more balanced and moderate ideas for our society. I think we've laid out some of those here. Or someone who is on the contrary of the belief that we should just get rid of the rich and give it all to the poor. Because I think there may be some fruit for thought for them as well. Just think of a friend who should hear this conversation, click share, and text them a link. And remember, we're here to stay. We'll find our way. Thank you for listening. Have a great weekend. Keep staying safe. Keep staying sane. Double mask when you're indoors. Love you all. Peace.